This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you and more than likely what Eustace von Liebig may have considered a weird distraction from everyday life. This week we're going back down under with a true crime-based episode. But before we get into that, I have a little bit of housekeeping to share before I'll fill you in on what I need a distraction from this week. As always, if you want to hear your need for a distraction, whether it's, I don't know, maybe a project at work you want to distract yourself from, or maybe it's a bad breakup, whatever it may be, feel free to send it my way at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com or feel free to shoot me a DM on the show's many social media platforms. In terms of housekeeping, just a heads up, I will be taking a break the week of September 17th due to being away out of town for work training, followed by a concert on top of a potential follow-up dental procedure, which this is a prime example of how batshit crazy my life has been. I'm very grateful for it, but I'm also just very tired. Regardless, I won't be releasing one of my episodes on September 17th. However, I will be dropping an episode from a fellow Cultivate Network member on my feed that week. So if you still need a distraction, we all got you. And if you're not tuning in to the rest of the Cultivate Network shows, you really should be. There's a lot of different shows to choose from. We've got Yield Crime. We got Reddit on Wiki. We've got Shots and Thoughts. We've got Horror House and many more. So definitely check it out. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I would have to say my need for a distraction is I recently got a tattoo cover-up done and if any listeners are tuning in that have had tattoos knows how painful it is to get the side of your ribs tattooed. I forgot how painful it was. I think when I got my original tattoo, the one I got covered up, which was a long quote, I was like 19 or 20, so almost a decade ago. And I really wanted to get it covered up. It's not that I didn't like the quote anymore. It's just the font I wasn't in love with anymore. And I wanted to get something more meaningful there. Let me tell you, three hours in a tattoo chair. We did take breaks. My tattoo artist is amazing. She kept asking if I was okay and kept checking in on me, but I just wanted to power through it. Regardless, it, it still hurt. And yeah, once it hits the rib bone, it's, it's hell. That is hell on earth, I'm pretty sure. Regardless of the pain, I love my tattoo. I'm so happy with it. I have a spooky tattoo appointment booked in late October, which I will definitely post on the podcast Instagram feed once it's all healed. And yeah, that's my need for distraction this week. It's kind of a not really negative need for distraction. It's more of a, hey, I'm just in a lot of pain and feel uncomfortable kind of distraction. But it has a positive ending, so that's a plus. 
Having said that, let's just get into this week's weird distraction. The last Weird Distractions episode based out of Australia was actually covered earlier this year when we all learned about the haunted hotspot being Airedale Mental Hospital and the J Ward. But that episode was done way back in spring, so I figured I would bring us back to the land down under, you know, for just old time's sake. And I know there's got to be at least two folks from Australia listening, so I have to show them some love too. As mentioned, today is a true crime-based episode, and without further wait, let's get into the life and crimes of Martha Needle, also known as the Black Widow of Richmond and the Richmond Poisoner. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics, such as mentions of sexual assault, familial violence, and other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. As humans, I think we're fascinated with those who commit heinous crimes for a multitude of reasons. Perhaps all circling to our desire to understand and know why someone would do something so wrong that goes against society's agreed-upon laws and morals. When it comes to today's weird distraction, you may find yourself having that same question pop in your head, and maybe you'll even try to find some answers in what I'm about to tell you. Unfortunately, without spoiling the ending here, There has been no real reason why a woman from Murray River in Morgan, South Australia, would murder the ones she reportedly loved. The case begins with Martha Charles, who was born on the 9th of April in 1863, making her an Aries for those Zodiac-loving listeners. Take that information however you see fit. Martha's life started off challenging right from the hop, with resources I came across stating that Martha was raised in poverty from a young age. Mix that on top of the loss of her father when she was a young child and being surrounded by family violence and addiction, I don't think I need to further explain why, and maybe others, have described Martha's early years as difficult, to say the least. When it comes to the family violence and addiction piece of it, it appears that Martha's mother, May, struggled with alcoholism. May allegedly often beat Martha either with a rope or some kind of stick due to reasons we're not privy to. The physical abuse at home got to a point where even neighbors of Martha and May allegedly knew about it, although I'm not quite sure if there was anything that neighbors did to try and intervene. May would go on to remarry a man named Daniel Foran, an Irishman, sometime in March of 1870. The newlyweds, along with Martha, then moved to North Adelaide at some point. I'm not really sure the exact details because the details are murky. Daniel was not a shining addition to the already struggling family, as resources indicated that he reportedly began sexually assaulting Martha. An article from the South Australian Advertiser dated April 4th 1876, aka five days before Martha's 13th birthday, published the following about Daniel. Quote, Daniel Foran, who is charged with indecently assaulting his stepdaughter, Martha Charles, at Adelaide in December of 1875, and found guilty, was brought up for sentence. His honor alluded to the enormity of the crime of which the prisoner had been found guilty and sentenced to the full term allowed by the act, two years with hard labor, end quote. 
So Daniel sucked, for lack of a better statement, and not only did Martha not really have May on her side amongst all of this, but she didn't have another parent to really protect her either. Perhaps because of the abuse by both Martha's mother and now her stepfather, Martha moved out by the age of 12 or 13, accounts vary, and began working as a housekeeper. By the age of 17, Martha became a married girl? Saying married woman doesn't really sound right here. But nonetheless, Martha married a man named Henry Needle. Henry has been described as a short, strong-built carpenter who was five years older than her. The couple were smitten over one another, and they would go on to have their first child in November of 1882, a daughter named Mabel Hannah. Two years later, in October of 1884, the couple welcomed their second daughter, Elsie. Things for the Needle family on the outside seemed to be going great. Henry was bringing in some money, and overall, the marriage between Martha and Henry was great. However, as we know from previous episodes, tragedy usually peaks its ugly head around the corner eventually in cases like this. In terms of the timeline here, some accounts claim it was February of 1885. Others claim it was December. Regardless, eldest daughter Mabel became ill, with noted symptoms such as fever, vomiting, and spasms of the stomach. At the wee age of only three years old, Mabel succumbed to her symptoms and passed away. I'm not really sure how long Mabel was sick for, but Martha reportedly stated after the fact that Mabel simply seemed to fade. I'm not sure about you all, but usually when I hear someone say this, it makes me think that it came on very rapidly. Initially, there was no suspicion around Mabel's death. According to the old Treasury Building website, a local doctor named Dr. Frederick Elsner indicated that Mabel had died from a cerebral tumor and respiratory and cardiac bronchitis. When the celebration of Mabel's life was all said and done, Martha reportedly collected Mabel's life insurance of 100 pounds, which would be about $40,000 in Australia's currency in 2010. I'm sure the Needle family hoped that the devastation and tragedy was over as days began to pass. They would welcome a third daughter, May, in 1886, which I'm sure brought the family some joy. However, the foundation of the Needle family seemingly started cracking. Supposedly, Henry began having to pick up work in Sydney, which I kind of gathered it was quite the move for the family. The Needle family would reportedly end up finding residence in a Melbourne suburb known as Richmond sometime in and around 1885, aka the same year Mabel passed. So it sounds like there was a lot of change going on for the family. Henry and Martha's marriage seemed to also hit some rocky waters, with allegations that she was going out on her own and perhaps having multiple affairs. A lot of the resources I came across noted that Henry was kind of the jealous type and Martha was this beautiful, outgoing woman who didn't really want to be tied down. I mean, yes, she married Henry, and yes, there's the whole structure of marriage and the legalities around it, but I got the sense that she was just a free spirit, so to speak, and Henry was not really keen on that as their marriage continued on. By 1889, Henry was sick. His doctor, George Hodgson, would later recall that Henry seemed to randomly suffer from acute vomiting. The doctor also noticed Henry's behavior was odd. For example, on one visit, the doctor observed that Henry had left untouched chicken broth and jelly that Martha had served him. At first glance, I would just assume that Henry wasn't hungry, but his doctor obviously believed that this was kind of odd enough to remember. 
Henry would succumb to this random onset illness in October of 1889 with Martha by his side. Henry was only in his early 30s when he passed away, with the official cause of death being deemed subacute hepatitis, persistent vomiting, enteric fever, and exhaustion due to obstinacy in not taking nourishment. Even though Henry's illness came on and took his life quickly, no post-mortem was actually performed. Furthermore, there was no suspicion towards his seemingly caring wife, Martha. And of course, people continued to feel sympathy for poor Martha, who would go on to lose more of her family members. For example, Elsie died in 1890 at age 6 and May reportedly passed away at either age 4 or 5 in 1891. Elsie apparently was sick for three weeks with what doctors thought was gangrious stomatitis and exhaustion, whereas May apparently succumbed to what doctors diagnosed as tubular meningitis. Listen, I'm not a doctor nor a medical health professional by any means, shape, or form. And you know what? I didn't look into either of these diagnoses because I will probably end up thinking that I will get it somehow, some way. But both of them sound bad. They sound very intense, especially for two little girls who apparently had a clean bill of health up until that point. For those wondering if Martha did receive any further life insurance money from all this tragic death, she did. And she apparently spent all the insurance money from Henry, Mabel, May, and Elsie on an elaborate family grave that resources noted she would visit regularly. Martha, now on her own, became a housekeeper to two brothers local to Richmond named Otto and Louis Junkins. Lewis had a saddle business, which I think Otto also worked at, not really sure. Martha would begin a romantic relationship with Otto, with the two becoming engaged rather quickly. I should mention, I came across conflicting reports when it came to Otto and Martha's relationship, because one resource mentioned that Martha actually cheated on Henry with Otto. However, no other resource mentioned this at all, and it kind of seemed to paint a timeline that had Otto and Martha getting together after Henry died. Anyways, Otto and Martha are all hard eyes for one another, but not everyone was digging this new engagement. Lewis was not a fan of this match his brother had made, especially when Martha began to display some concerning behaviors. In a direct quote from the Old Treasury Building website, quote, She and Otto soon became engaged, but during this time Martha's behavior began to cause concern. She would become unresponsive or rigid for long periods. On at least one occasion, she went out to search for her dead children. Not surprisingly, Lewis became concerned and opposed the engagement, end quote. In retrospect, Martha may have been suffering from grief, but of course, this is the 1890s and proper understandings of grief, trauma, or even mental health was far from being the norm. Nonetheless, things were rocky for Otto and Martha's engagement with Lewis's disapproval. But the rockiness seemed to disappear when Lewis became ill in April of 1894 with mysterious symptoms. These symptoms included vomiting, a sore mouth and gums, and a sore tongue. By May of that year, Lewis was dead. And before July, Lewis and Otto's other brother, Herman, also became ill with similar symptoms. 
Herman, not really understanding what was going on with his body and probably wanting a medical opinion, went to his own doctor. Herman's doctor reportedly decided to do an analysis of Herman's vomit, and the results were troubling. It turns out that the analysis revealed that Herman actually had arsenic in his vomit, which means he ingested arsenic at some point. This arsenic posed similarly to a popular rat poison called rough on rats. Once this was discovered, police weren't promptly notified, as Herman's doctor and Herman figured out quickly what was actually going on here. Herman noted he only fell ill whenever he ate something Martha prepared for him, and it seemed like his brothers were in fine health until she came around. I can imagine a light bulb moment happened at that appointment, realizing his potential future sister-in-law was purposefully making him ill and perhaps was behind Lewis's death. This light bulb moment really shone a light that Martha had a lot going on under the surface, but it all was going to come to the forefront shortly. Although many didn't initially suspect it at first, after some time and deaths, Martha continued to look more and more suspicious. Herman's doctor would go on to inform the police of their suspicions regarding Martha, as previously mentioned, in which police agreed to set up a trap. The plan was simple. Herman would ask Martha to make him something to eat for lunch one day, and once it was served, Herman would blow a whistle to let police know it was time to interrupt the meal. The day came, and after being served a cup of tea, Herman blew his whistle, summoning nearby detectives who arrived quickly on site to witness Martha trying to get the freshly made tea away from Herman that apparently contained enough arsenic to kill five people. Martha was quickly arrested and charged with attempted murder of Herman, and soon thereafter, the bodies of Lewis, Henry, Elsie, May and Mabel were exhumed to be further examined. Maybe not shocking at this point, but nonetheless still tragic. All five bodies were found to contain fatal levels of arsenic. Martha was taken to trial, seemingly only for the murder of Lewis based on documentation. However, information regarding the legalities of her actual trial online were a bit spotty. I mean, it was 1894, and as we know, historical documentation, depending on the situation and time, can be as spotty as a Dalmatian. Regardless, Martha was found guilty after a three-day trial where she persistently kept saying she was not guilty. She never stopped pleading her innocence, especially when she was given her sentence. And who could really blame her, as Martha was sentenced to death? On October 22, 1894, just before 8 a.m., Martha was taken to the gallows within the old Melbourne jail. When asked for a final statement, Martha reportedly replied, I have nothing to say. Martha would be the third of four women total hanged at the old Melbourne jail. Others included Martha Scott in 1863, Frances Knorr in 1894, and Emma Williams in 1895. To this very day, no one really knows the true motive behind Martha's crimes, and Martha, before she was hanged, didn't explain what happened or why she did what she did. Yes, she collected the life insurance of almost all of her victims, but she didn't continue on a financial-based motive. And because of that, many have speculated wildly as to what has happened and why. 
But at the end of the day, five lives were lost, and the reason went with the sixth life that was lost in all of this, being Martha's. Before I wrap up this week's episode, I did want to mention another piece of this case that I came across that I personally found very weird. Apparently, Martha had an older sister named Ellen, and with Ellen, she had a nephew named Alexander, full name Alexander Newland Lee. In 1920, Alexander reportedly murdered his wife, Muriel, along with their three children. How did Alexander do this tragic act? Well, with poison. Similarly to his aunt Martha, Alexander would be tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death, where he would be hanged at the Adelaide Jail in July of 1920. It's not clear if Alexander knew about his Aunt Martha, dubbed the Richmond Poisoner and the Black Widow of Richmond, given it sounds as if Ellen and Martha were not very close. But what is weird and interesting to note here, both Alexander and Martha proclaimed their innocence until the very brutal end. This week's case may have similarities to previous ones covered on the show, and despite that, every poison case has its own weird differences. Some of the cases were primarily financially driven, whereas others, like Martha's, seem to not really kind of have a clear motive. I don't have the right to sit here and speculate what I think happened by any means. Although the only comment I will make is that, to me, perhaps Martha struggled with her mental well-being. Her childhood alone probably caused some trauma, and who knows how it would have unfolded in an era where mental health treatment and overall acceptance was far from where it is today. Nonetheless, Martha's reasonings, and even her nephew's reasonings, remain a very weird mystery to this day, some odd 100 years later. Let me know your thoughts on today's episode on the podcast social media accounts or feel free to shoot me an email. And if you have another weird case from Australia, whether it's true crime, conspiracy theory based, or maybe it's a folklore or a haunted hotspot, feel free to let me know. I'd love to cover more things from this country in a future episode. Don't forget, I'm taking a break next week, but there still will be a new episode on the feed. Check it out. I'll see you all at the end of the month with a new Weird Distractions episode. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, anyone who you think needs a distraction about the show. Doing so is one of the best ways to support this show for free. Speaking of supporting the podcast for free, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into. When it comes to any corrections that need to be made or perhaps some constructive feedback, please feel free to send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Are you looking to rep some Weird Distractions merch? Please check out the link in today's show notes for the bonfire link. It's never a bad time to treat somebody you love or perhaps treat yourself. Although the Patreon page is currently on an indefinite hiatus, I just want to thank the previous patrons of the show. Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Shadow, Courtney, Cheryl, Susan, Jennifer, and Kristen. Thank you for supporting the Patreon page. I truly appreciate every single one of you. For those on social media, Weird Distractions can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, and Facebook. 
Lastly, I'm always wanting to hear from you. I'm looking to hear about your weird paranormal encounters, maybe too close to home true crime cases, and other weird experiences that you're willing to share to be featured on a future Listener Distractions episode. No matter how short, how long, spooky, or just weird, send your tales my way to, again, the show's email address being weirddistractionspodcasts at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.